The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray, ask for help as we come before God's word together. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. Lord, even in the Trinity, you are a Father who loves the Son, a Son who loves the Father, and there's the person of the Holy Spirit you communicate within yourself. We thank you that you speak to us, that you've given us your word, that we can hear what Jesus Christ has to say this morning. Um, Lord, help us to realize what we're doing right now, that as we listen to your word, that we are listening to you, that you're here by your Holy Spirit, that you're speaking, and you want us to hear what you have to say. Let us listen, Lord. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to be open to what you have to say. Help me, God, help me, please, to teach this uh, faithfully and clearly, Lord, and uh, let us see you, Lord Jesus, for who you really are, and live in the light of that reality. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. A lot of confusion about who Jesus is. Now, most people aren't willing to say anything super negative about Jesus. If you pay attention to what uh, famous people in the culture say about Jesus, it's usually at least something like, he's a good person, a good teacher. Gandhi, for example, said, What does Jesus mean to me? To me, he was one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. Was Gandhi a Christian? No, Gandhi would have told you himself he's not a Christian. Ralph Waldo Emerson, you've heard of him, a famous American writer, intellectual. He said, Jesus is the most perfect of all the men that have yet appeared on the earth. High praise. Was Mr. Emerson a Christian? No, he wouldn't have said he was a Christian. Why is so much of the voices of history, so much of our own culture, why are so many people so happy to call Jesus a good teacher, or even the best teacher, the greatest teacher? I have two answers to that question. One is because, well, you have to say something about his teaching because it's absolutely unique. When you compare his teaching with the teaching of anyone else, any other religious leader, Jesus just shines like the sun. He stands out. He's unique. He's different. He is the best teacher ever. His moral code on how to treat others is unsurpassed. His wisdom is brilliant. Yeah, he's a good teacher. He's the best one. So, okay, let's give him credit for that. But there's there's a second answer to this question. Why, Why are we all happy to call him good teacher? The second answer, I think, has a darker side. See what you think. If I call Jesus a good teacher... I can feel okay about recognizing him positively. But I can just leave him kind of at a distance. He's a teacher. And then if somebody's a good teacher, I can come to him for good advice. But I don't have to give him complete authority over my life. He's just a teacher. So if he's a good teacher, I can take what I like. I can learn from him. Maybe I can even study what he says. But then I can leave him there. And I can remain my own authority. Because if he's more than a teacher, he's asking for more of who I am. 
He's not just giving advice. Maybe he's giving things like commands, demands. So I want to ask this question for you this morning. What's the authority in your life? Maybe that's strange wording. What's the sun in your solar system where you're oriented around this thing? It grabs your mind, grabs your heart. You live for it. You think about this thing when you're making choices, when you're making decisions. When you have needs, that's where you run. That's where you look to. It's what you're pursuing. Ultimate authority. How do you know what life is all about? I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to have an interview on stage with every one of you and just have a give and take on what's life all about and and what each one of us might say? It's this or it's that. And then to say, how do you know that? And as you answered that question on how you know it, we'd begin to see your authority. Some of you would say, well, I know it because I've experienced it, and my experience defines how I see the world. Now, we'd have to all admit, right, your experience big part of who you are. It's a big part of how you know what you know. But is it just experience? Because I don't know about you, I've had a lot of different experiences, a lot of different varieties of experience. And if I, if I aimed my life out of this experience, I'd go one way. If I aimed it out of that experience, I'd go a far different way. There would be no continuity if I built my life or my authority on my experiences. What's your authority? Who's in control of your life? Is it, is it you? How do you know what's true and what's real? Where do you find your hope, your joy, your meaning, and your purpose? Where do you run? What's most important? What's your authority? Who's your authority? And then one more question on this. Who deserves to be your authority? Who's deserve, who deserves to be your authority? So say you're putting a, an, an ad in the... Newspaper of the universe, looking for trustworthy authority. Looking for someone to lead every moment of my life. What would you want on a resume like that? Would you want somebody who's betrayed other people? Would you want somebody who's been kind of a fool, kind of an idiot certain moments? Would you want somebody who's a liar? Well, that'd be exactly what you wouldn't want. And here's what's funny to me as I ask this question to myself. What if I look at my own resume, my own life? I've betrayed people. I have been a fool. I've lied. I don't think I'm qualified to lead myself. I don't want to lead myself anymore. Maybe that's part of getting older. Maybe, did, you have a, did you have a streak in your life where authority was a bad word and your whole goal is to break it, deny it, run from it? If it's authority, I'm doing the opposite. How'd that go for you? <laughs> Maybe at some point you wake up and say, it's not working. And yet, you look at the world around you and you say, I don't see anything else that deserves to be my authority either, that idea of worthy. I don't see anything out there that's worthy to own my life. Who's your authority? Who should be? Why? It's a big question, isn't it? We're in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been going through this amazing book. It's an eyewitness testimony of the life of Jesus. In chapter 22, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. And as we enter into the story, we need to remember that the tension here is really high. 
So in Matthew 21, it'd be a few days ago from, from the situation where we're in, in the book, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on the swell of just a massive crowd. They think, they hope, they wonder if he's the Messiah or the Christ. The Christ, the Messiah, same thing. It's the idea of God's promised king who's going to deliver his people and bring paradise on earth, really. And they were hoping as Jesus entered the city that he might go there in his power and confront the Romans. They were under the iron thumb of the Roman Empire. Confront the Romans, chase them off. I mean, after, after all, a guy who can do miracles like Jesus, what could he do to an enemy army? Maybe he'll shut down the Romans. Instead, shockingly, as he enters Jerusalem with all this crowd behind him, he doesn't go shut down the Romans. Shockingly, surprisingly, he goes and he shuts down the temple. And he shuts down the temple during the feast of Passover. Now let me explain a little bit for you so you can try to feel how epic this is, how controversial this is. The temple was the hub of the wheel for Israelite life. The temple really was the authority. In the temple you have the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence is. You have the priests there, and they teach God's words. You know what the story of the world is. You know what's truth. You know what life is for. And there in the temple you offer sacrifices. See, nearly all of humanity has known. We've all got these different temples that there's a distance between us and the gods. There's a distance between us and the true God due to our sin. And so that distance needs to be bridged somehow. And so sacrifices would be offered. The sheep would take the penalty for my sin in my place. He dies so that I live. And so you have the authority for their lives at the temple. So Jesus comes to the temple. It's just the biggest part of their lives. And he comes during Passover. Passover has every Jew that can possibly make it from all the surrounding area flocking to Jerusalem. There's no place to stay. Sleep. People are just sleeping in the fields. Everybody is there, scads of people. And they're remembering this great feast, highest feast of the year. They remember how God saved Israel from Egypt. They were slaves. God delivered them with a mighty hand. And there was that story of the Passover land as the angel of judgment came to judge evil Egypt. Well, the Israelites couldn't skate free just because of their ethnicity. They're sinners too. So the Passover land would be killed and this weird thing where the blood would be put on the doors. And if the blood was on your house, then the angel of judgment would pass over and you'd be safe. And so they'd come and they'd celebrate this and masses of Sheep would be sacrificed to remember that lamb died instead of us. And so Jesus, right in the middle of this, goes to the temple and he shuts it down. For an entire day, he shuts it down. This is the biggest money-making place, money in, the, in the biggest money-making time of the year. All the people are there to worship, offer sacrifices. Every priest is their, the busiest work week of the year. This is it right here. It's the highlight of the year. And Jesus shuts it down, kicks over the table, spills the money, pushes all the animals out. For today, this one day, no sacrifices. Today, this one day, no priests speaking. I'm shutting it down. 
And all the while, he's quoting scripture, and he's calling the temple, he's calling it my house. My house. And so when Jesus enters the temple the next day, I mean, this would just throw the whole community upside down. When he enters the temple the next day, the questions the religious leaders have for him focus in right on this. They ask him, what authority do you have to come into God's house and shut the thing down? It's kind of like when we ask at home, right, if the kid's acting unruly, what do we say? Who do you think you are? Okay, it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> you're, not, you're not who you think you are, okay? You're not in charge. They're saying that to Jesus. Who do you think you are that you can come and that you can end worship of God in his temple for a day? Who are you? What authority do you have? Do you hear the question? Who are you? What authority do you have? Your authority comes with who you are. If Jesus is just a good teacher, does he have the right to shut down the temple? No. That question the religious leaders are asking Jesus is the same question being asked today that needs to be asked. Jesus Christ says to each one of us, I'm the one you need. I'm the prophet you need. You need to listen to me. I'm the priest you need. Only I can make you right with God. I'm the king you need. I'm the authority you need. How do you feel when he gives you that invitation? Some of us, maybe we're Christians and we say, I used to resist that, now I love it, I want it. That's my life. But even if you're a Christian, can't you know of days or moments when you say, I don't want to be all yours. Maybe if you're not a Christian or you're thinking about being a Christian, you say, I, I don't know that I want to trust my life to Jesus. And so the question is, well, is he worthy? Is his resume good enough to be your ultimate authority? Does he deserve it? And, and at the heart of that matter is this, who is he? Who is he? If Gandhi's right, he's a good teacher, learn some advice on how to treat people and then go somewhere else and do what you want. If Emerson's right, Say nice things about Jesus, but then move on. Are they right? Who is he? So as we're following the story, Jesus has entered the city, cleansed the temple, then he's being tested. Who are you? And then there's all these public debates happening in front of the crowds. And so the Pharisees come, the Sadducees, these religious groups, and using these kind of sideline questions, their whole goal in these debates is to trip Jesus up, make him look bad, make him look stupid, to show that he's a fraud to show that he doesn't have the authority to do what he's doing, to get him in trouble with the Romans, to get him killed, to get the crowds to say, oh, we're done with Jesus, enough. They're trying to trip him up. And if you've been with us the last month or two, you've seen they haven't done a very good job because Jesus is brilliant. He's amazing. And so two weeks ago, we finished that last kind of debate question where they said, well, what about this? And he, he answered them. But now today, the tables turn because it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. They've brought their best to try to expose him as a fraud, and they haven't been able to do it. And now Jesus says, even though they've been aiming at sideline issues, Jesus says, you know what, let's bring it back to the heart of the matter. Let's bring it back to what's most important, Jesus is saying. I've got a question now for you. You ask me, what authority do I have to do this? Well, try this question on for size. 
and see how you answer it. So as Jesus wants to get to the main point about who he is and the authority he has, that's what we're going to be studying today in Matthew 22. We're going to be looking at verses 41 to 46. I'd love it if you follow along, page 828 in our chair Bibles, Matthew 22. And we're going to look at three major things. Number one, the question Jesus raises about his identity. He wants us to think about who he is. Number two, we're going to look at the answer for who he is. When Jesus raises this question, his opponents won't answer. They're, they're stumped. They don't want to go there. Hopefully we can do a little better and come up with the answer. And then number three, we'll try to think, what does this mean for us? So number one, the question Jesus raises. Verse 41. Now the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now we have a challenge for us today. All of these phrases they heard back 2,000 years ago sitting in the temple, everybody listening would have been familiar with this language. Christ, son of David, yeah, we know what you're talking about. How many of you a little bit are like, I don't know what you're talking about? If you feel that way a little bit, welcome to the club. It's going to get worse Because Jesus is going to quote from a psalm, Psalm 110. And so kind of our work this morning is to be a little bit Indiana Jones. You guys ever seen Indiana Jones? What does Indiana Jones do, right? He does two things. He's he's an ancient historian. He's an archaeologist. And so he studies what? The nerdy stuff. The old stuff. But when you're deep in that Mayan cave in South America... And you have to pick the right step. You better know your old stuff, right? It matters. Kind of like that for us as biblical scholars trying to understand what Jesus is saying. If we don't get a framework for what's happening in the old stuff, we won't see why it matters so much. So we're kind of trying to learn the language. So this first question, Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? Okay, What's the Christ? How do you fill that word in, in your mind? To, to melt it down, I, call the, I, I say this about the Christ. He's God's promised king. God's promised king. If you, look at the, if you back up and look at the storyline of the Bible, there's a, a great, holy, awesome God who creates everything. The best part of his creation, male and female, humankind. They're made to be satisfied in God, to love God, to know him, to, to submit to him, to live for him, to, to image who he is. Well, they rebel against him. They fall into sin. It brings just this epic curse on every part of life. It, it, it breaks us. It ruins us. And so you see the, the, the destruction that comes because of it. But right then, right there in the beginning, there's a promise that somebody's going to come, he's going to restore, he's going to reconcile, he's going to redeem, he's going to fix it. So throughout the entire what we call the Old Testament, there's these pictures of how much we need this person to come save us and these promises of who he'll be. And by the time of Jesus, that word is plain. It's this. It's Christ. He's the Messiah. The promised king, God's promised king, will come. He'll save us. He'll judge evil. He'll renew the world. He'll bring paradise. That's what we're looking for, the Christ. So then Jesus said, whose son is the Christ? Hey, Christ, who's your daddy? Why is that important? 
Well, okay, so if you're waiting for the Christ, and by the way, during this time in history, there's a lot of pretending Christ. A lot of people who try to start civil wars and start movements saying, I'm the Christ, you, can, you, can you name any of their names? No, you can't. That's because they failed. <laughs> so the people were all looking for the Christ. Well, how do you know it's him? Well, one way you know who the Christ is, is that he has to be in the lineage of this guy named David. Why? Why David? Well, again, we're, we're studying the old stuff so this stuff can make sense. David was the iconic Israelite king. Israel's first king was named Saul, and his name kind of meant you asked for it. You asked for it. Israel said, we want a king just so we can be like everybody else. You asked for it. And they got Saul. All Saul cared about was what people thought. And he wrecked a lot of people in a lot of places. And he was ruinous. He rebelled against God. He had no love for God. And so God said, well, next king, I'm going to raise one up that I'll like. He's going to be a man after my own heart. And so that next king, it was David. Now, he obviously was very flawed, quite flawed. But one thing was consistent about David. He had a heart for God. He loved God. When he messed up, he repented. He loved God. He wrote things like this, Psalm 24. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I'll dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Who talks like that? What's the one thing you want? David would say, I just want to see God. I love him. So David is this iconic king. And then David, later in his life, after he knew some successes, he wanted to build a temple for God. He wanted to build a house for God. And so he said, here, here I go. But then God spoke to David through Nathan the prophet and said, no, you're not building me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. David wanted to build a temple. God said, I'm going to build a dynasty. 2 Samuel 7. I'll raise up your son who will come from your body. I'll establish his kingdom. His throne will be established forever. Forever. So who's going to rule forever in the Jewish mind? The son of who? David. David. Now as you read again the biblical storyline, you see this Davidic dynasty. They end up failing. They, they're corrupt. They rot out. They don't worship God. They're not faithful. And so to the end where there's no Israelite king at all, there's no king in Judah, they're brought into exile. But even then, through the prophets, it was God's promise. A king's coming. He's going to be the son of David. We read one of those promises today, Psalm 89. I'll raise up David. So when Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? They're thinking, God's promised king is going to judge, judge our enemies and save us and bring paradise. And then they say, whose son is he? Well, that's a gimme. Every Israelite boy who ever went to Sunday school knows the answer to this, right? In our Sunday school, if you don't know the answer, what do you say? Jesus. And 99%, you're probably right. What does the little boy in Israelite Sunday school say? Whose son is the Christ? David. David. David's son. Now you see why the Pharisees were so angry earlier in the week when the people said, Hosanna to the son of David. What are they saying about Jesus? You're the Christ. Or when the kids in the temple are singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Why are the Pharisees so angry? You're the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. That's what they're singing. So he comes into the temple, shuts it down, and they're all saying, you're the Christ, you're the Christ. The Pharisees said to Jesus, don't you hear what they're saying? Tell them to shut up. They're implying, you know you're not that guy. 
You know you're not the Christ, so quit accepting praise like this. That's not you. You don't have this authority. And here is what I want you to see. Jesus is saying, not only am I who they're singing about, I'm more than any of you know. I'm not less than what they're saying. I'm more than what they're saying. I've got a question for you. And look, look at verse 43. Verse 42, we've already asked the question. Whose son is the Christ? What's the answer? If you're Jewish, you know the answer. David. Okay. Is that it? Is that it? Now look at Jesus' question. Verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm 110. What is Jesus saying? Now again, we've got to keep our Indiana Jones on. I want to invite you to turn with me to page 509 in your chair Bibles so that we can look at Psalm 110. 509. And just remember, we're asking who Jesus is. We're asking whose son is the Christ. The obvious answer is David. Is that it? And really the answer will mean everything. So hopefully you're with me, Psalm 110, verse 1, or if you stayed in Matthew, it's verse 44. First of all, we see Jesus' view of Scripture Verse 44, Jesus says, the Lord said to my Lord, or excuse me, verse 43, Jesus said, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? So who's writing this according to to Jesus? How is it that David in the spirit? So so who's writing this? David. David wrote this. Psalm 110, if you're there on page 509, you got the subscript right there next to the big number 110. A psalm of who? David. Okay. A lot of new and fancy scholars will say, oh, that's not true. David didn't write that. Who, who did Jesus think thought? Who, who did Jesus think uh, wrote it? It's David. And not only that, was David just fooling around by himself? Jesus said, David in the what wrote it? In the spirit. This is, this is our biblical doctrine of inspiration. That when God wants to speak, he uses human authors with real concerns in their life, with them as people and who they're writing to, but the Spirit is in control of it and guides it and makes it just right. So this is Jesus' view of Scripture. He has the highest view of the Bible. Some things in the Old Testament are hard to believe, hard to, hard to understand. And people say, why do you believe that? And here's my major answer. You know why I believe it? Jesus believed it. And that's good enough for me. Jesus believed it. David, in the Spirit, said this. Now, okay, really pay attention, because I want you to see the three people in verse 1 of Psalm 110. Who's the first one we meet? The who? The Lord. Now, do you see in your Bibles that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? The Lord. So this is God's covenant name, Yahweh. It means I am. It's his holiness. It's his uniqueness. I always am. I had no beginning. I'll have no end. I always am. I'm everything. I'm the only one. This is Israel's God, Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord says, who's speaking? God speaking. The Lord says, now the Lord says to who? 
Let's just think about the word my. My. Who is speaking from the perspective of that word? David. So here's David. Now remember, who's David? He's the king. And who's talking? Yahweh. God is talking. The Lord says to my Lord, who's the third person? My Lord. Well, who's that guy? Think about this. In the Old Testament, you've got Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, God. He's talking, and David is narrating, my. Who on earth would David call his Lord other than God? You guys are going too fast. But do you see it right here in the Old Testament? Who is this third person? Listen, David doesn't call anybody Lord. He's the king of Israel. There's one person that gets the title Lord Yahweh. It's God. God, David. And yet David says, there's somebody else. And I don't call him my buddy or my son. Who, what does David call this third person? Lord. Lord. Look at this mysterious person, this third person. Verses 1, what does the Lord say to this, my Lord, this third guy? Sit at my right hand. You guys, the right hand for the king is like the place of power, the place of preeminence. It's nearly equality. God is saying to this mysterious third person, you sit here and you reign like you're me. You reign with my authority. You reign over the nations. Not only this, look at, look at verse 4. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a what? A priest? Remember I told you about Saul, that you asked for it, king? One of the things he did so wrong was he wanted to get all the people to follow him for a certain venture, and Samuel was late. And Saul so feared what the people would say that he took Samuel's job and did the job of a priest. And God had said, you're not allowed to do that job. You're the king. You're not the priest. And Saul said, well, I'll do what I want. And that's what lost Saul his kingdom. The king can't be the priest. David is not the priest. And yet, what about this guy in Psalm 110? He's not only the king who sits at God's right hand and rules everyone, he's also what? A priest forever. Back to Matthew. Whose son is the Christ? David. Really? Is that it? How is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, the Christ, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So what's the question? Whose son is he? If he's David's Lord who rules everything like God, is he just David's son? Is that enough? Is that enough? Look at the response of his enemies in verse 46, Matthew 22. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. This guy knows our book better than we do. They don't want to answer this question. They run away. They're done. We're out of here. Let's just kill him. We don't want to listen to him anymore. We can't handle this. 
And again, what's the question? Who is he? The kids in the crowds are saying, you're the Christ, the son of David. His enemies are saying, you're not the Christ. Tell him you're not the son of David. Jesus says, I'm not only the son of David. I'm not just David's son. I'm more than that. And you know the answer. Who possibly could sit at God's right hand and rule the nations? God's son. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God. He's divine. Now, are you so used to this that it doesn't amaze you anymore? How many of you have heard this before? Jesus is the son of God. We sang it. Jesus, son of God. Okay. Do you realize what we're talking about? Do you realize what we're talking about? God. Is that a small word or is that a large concept? God, eternal, makes everything, controls everything, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, holy, worthy of everything, worthy of everything, God. God became a man. God became a man. Sometimes people say, I just can't believe Jesus rose from the dead. You're like, do you believe he's the son of God? Oh, yeah. Which one's crazier? God puts on flesh? Listen, if he's God in the flesh, of course he's going to rise from the dead. That's gravy. He's God in the flesh? He came? He's saying to them, I'm not just David's son, I'm the son of God. We know this if we've been reading Matthew, don't we? We know it from a hundred different reasons. But remember Jesus' baptism. He comes and he says, John, you've got to baptize me. And John says, I'm not baptizing you. Do you know who you are? <laughs> Look at who you are. And Jesus says, no, I've got to do this. I'm walking in the shoes of my people. And he goes into the water, which symbolizes judgment. And he comes out, which symbolizes forgiveness and life. And as, and as he comes out of the water, a voice audibly says, basically, he didn't need to be baptized. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. He's the son of God. He's the son of God. And skeptics might say, well, prove it. That's a, that's a crazy concept. Prove it. Well, what would you want to see in the son of God? You'd want to see him sinless, wouldn't you? Never sinned. What did Jesus say? If anyone can show any sin about me, you know, come forward. I, that makes me laugh every time. Because wouldn't it be funny if we tried that? Let's have, an, let's have a, you know, a volunteer come up and be like, hey, if anyone could convict me of sin... Go ahead and bring it up now. <laughs> How would that go for you? Even in this room, you know, we'd all be like, well, I may have seen you sin a couple times. And if any relatives are here, then your boat's really sunk. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matt. I've never sinned. And Marsha's like, <clears throat> uh, he's sinless. They never had a you sinned, we caught you. Never once. Believe me, they were looking. What about incredible miracles in front of large crowds? Unbelievable miracles in front of large crowds. Later on, Jewish skeptics who hated Jesus would still call him like a witch doctor, witchcraft. Why did they have to say that? Because look, everybody knows he did miracles. Can't argue about it. What about just the power of his person? The power of his person. No one could answer him. And yet he's touching the lepers, the people no one wants to touch. He's healing the blind, he's compassionate, the power of his person. And then there's the thing, the little thing about how he predicts his death or resurrection and then does it. 
He's the Son of God, and really this is the core Christian message, isn't it? Jesus Christ, one person, Jesus, two natures, divine from all eternity, took on flesh, 100% human for us. Apostle Paul said this in Romans 1. I want to tell you about the gospel. He said, this gospel which God promised before and through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Messiah. Verse 3 of chapter 1 in Romans. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the son of God. Are you amazed by this? What does it mean for our lives? Well, I asked you in the beginning who your authority is. And hopefully we're thinking a little bit about who our authority should be. We're thinking about the resume on on what kind of person we want to have that place in our lives. It shouldn't be me. Shouldn't be you. I've got a proposal. It should be Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God who put on flesh for us. Only Jesus has the right to be the ultimate authority. You know, his enemies are asking, What authority do you have to do this? And he says, I'm the Son of God. (laughs) Can you get higher? Can you get bigger? Can you get better? There he is in all his perfect glory, Jesus, son of God. Now I was really struggling with how to apply this. What are you going to do with this? Because there's a billion ways you apply this. Is your life oriented around Jesus? Is he where you run to in time of need? Is he who you listen to for truth? Listen, aren't there's all these voices from culture Voices from culture yelling at you all the time, telling you a story, what life is all about, what you need, who you are. Are you beautiful enough? Are you skinny enough? Are you rich enough? Do you have enough? Who are you listening to? John Calvin said, can I throw a little theology at you? This is why you pay the big bucks, okay? John Calvin said that Jesus fulfilled the Munis triplex. You like that? Now you can handle this. We're people who like Star Wars and Star Trek. We like titles, knights. Munis triplex. What does it mean? The three offices of Jesus. We're looking at old stuff because we need it for the real stuff. Number one, Jesus, John Calvin said, is the ultimate prophet. Look, when Jesus goes to the temple and shuts it down and stops it, there's no sacrifices, there's no priests, there's no sermons, there's just him. He's replacing it with himself. He's saying, it's me. Everything you need is me. And so Calvin says, rightly, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. What do prophets do? They tell you the word of God. They tell you the truth. Jesus said in John 14, I'm the truth. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Who are you listening to? Does he have your ear? Are you hearing him in his word? Are you listening to who he is? He is the only one worthy to be your authority on truth. It's Jesus. Not only is he the ultimate prophet, he's the ultimate priest. We saw in Psalm 110 that Jesus is a a priest forever. Look, we can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right with God. We've sinned. We've broken his laws. We've broken his commands. And yet Jesus has come 
the priest, to bridge the gap. Doing it through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Giving himself, offering up this very sacrifice of, his, of himself. So that if you trust in Jesus, he has taken responsibility for you. He intercedes for you so that now the Father sees you with all the glory and perfection of Jesus Christ stamped upon you. If you trust in Jesus, it's like you've never sinned in the Father's eyes. Jesus has given you his righteousness. If you trust in Jesus, you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to tone for it. You don't have to make up for it. Jesus paid for it on the cross. The Passover lamb was sacrificed on the cross, made us right with God. He's the ultimate priest. Do you rely on him for who you are? Do you rely on him for your identity? Do you see, who are you? How do you answer that? If you're not saying, I am an adopted child of God, fully loved, accepted, embraced, you haven't gripped what it means that Jesus is the ultimate priest for you. You are loved. You've been brought near as a free gift if you trust in him. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the ultimate king. He rules now over all things. He rules now our lives for our goods. For our good, one day he'll return and rule explicitly and we'll get that paradise we've been waiting for. And he rules us here in our hearts and our minds. Does he rule you? Are you following him? Are you following him as your king? Obeying his commands and just following him every day, abiding in him, listening to him, asking, how can I please you, Lord Jesus? He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king. He's the authority. He's the son of God. It's Christmas. What are we celebrating? God entered a womb. God came through a birth canal. God suckled at his mother's breast. Why did he do that? To bring you to himself. To invite you to himself. To be your authority. To, that you would latch on to him. Y'all, who has a better resume for being your ultimate authority than Jesus? Does anybody love you more? Came for you, gave up his life for you? Can you trust him? Does anybody have more truth than he does? A better prophet? Does anybody have more ministry for you than he does as your king? As your priest? Does anybody have more wisdom and power as your king? What's the answer? Who, who should be your authority? Jesus. He's the only one worthy. As we uh, take up our offering and then enjoy the Lord's Supper together, we're going to get fed by this king. I want you to think about him as your authority and what it means. What does it mean for you to listen to him more as your prophet, rely on him more as your priest, follow him more as your king, and then together we'll take the bread, we'll take the juice, and remember that our king gave up his life for us. Our priest shed his blood for us. Our prophet, he speaks to us. And he's everything we need. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to repent for how many times we uh, are satisfied with counterfeits. Lord, you are our authority. You're the best. You're worthy. And so each one, Lord, we want to come to you, Lord Jesus, and realize 
You are the son of David. You're the son of God. And you're worthy of all our hope. You're worthy of being our authority. Help us turn to you. Know what it means for every aspect of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.